in a series called The Table. If you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. This series is really taking a look at Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, but uh, encounters kind of around the table or mealtime or food. And there are a lot of different kind of situations where Jesus is at a table. Many of them are intimate. This one is a lot less intimate. It's, it's a lot more public. And so we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000 today. And we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. The beginning of uh, Luke uh, chapter 9 is Jesus sending out the 12 disciples. And he sends them out, says, take nothing with you. Go from village to village. And if they receive you, walk in. Um, and kind of that whole discipleship thing of, of Jesus sending them out. There's two different times that Jesus sends out disciples. One is the 12, uh, the other is the larger group. And the interesting thing with this one is that as they're going, beginning of verse 7, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Now one of the interesting things about uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is it's the only miracle to show up in all four Gospels other than the resurrection. It's a really significant, uh, symbolic story, and it shows up in all four Gospels. If you read it in Matthew and Mark, you'll see that Jesus is actually getting the news about John the Baptist being uh, beheaded prior to pulling away by himself uh, to a town called Bethsaida. But here we see Herod show up, and he's talking about having just beheaded John, and then you get this interesting comment of Herod's. He says, who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. I find it really interesting that Herod is trying to see Jesus. So the whole city, the whole town, the whole countryside, the whole land in some sense is talking about this man. And he's curious about him. And he's actually probably talking to some of his aides or, or whatever it might be. I want to see this person. I want to investigate this. I want to interview this person. And I just find that a fascinating thing that, that Herod is trying to see Jesus. Then we get to verse 10. It says this, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took, with them, uh, he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Now, late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because they are in a remote place here. And he replied, You give them something to eat. And they answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about five thousand of the men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And the disciples did so. And everybody sat down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The interesting thing about this particular meal is it's, it's different than kind of the more intimate ones where you really, really look at the key players that are sitting around the table. So whose house is it in? Is it Levi's house? Is it Simon's house? Who's around the table? Who's in the room? Who's interacting with Jesus? This particular one is a lot more centered on geography. Where is it? What's happening? It's a very public thing. So I want to kind of walk us through the geography of the New Testament here, of the Gospels, um, because it's going to factor in a bunch as we go through. So this is Nazareth. That's where Jesus was born. Uh, in his own hometown, they all knew him as, as little Jesus, uh, the carpenter's son. And remember, he leaves from there, and he goes to the Sea of Galilee. And this is a good, solid day's walk uh, or more. This is Cana, where you see the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And he gets to the Sea of Galilee, the north shore of Galilee, and there's a city called Capernaum here. And that's the area where... Uh, Andrew and Peter 
and James and John are from, where Jesus kind of picks up his disciples. Uh, and if we zoom in just a bit, you see the Sea of Galilee. And this is Bethsaida, this, this area right here, Capernaum. Um, and right here, we're going to see where the historic site of the feeding of the 5,000 happens. Uh, so there's actually a church right here, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and then right next to that, there's another church, which is called the Primacy of Peter, which is supposedly Peter's birthplace or where Jesus said on this rock, um, I will build my church. And so right on the shores of Galilee, you see these two things. If you go back, you actually will see, you can't really see, but I'm going to point to it. I, on my computer, I could see uh, the two churches, Primacy of Peter and then the feeding of uh, the 5,000, kind of both right there. And then you'll see Mount of Beatitudes right above it. Um, so where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount is in the hills right above the shore here where you see these two churches marking the historic sites uh, of those two different things. So now if we go forward um, and then forward again, here's the interesting thing. Uh, if you take this triangle here where you had, remember I showed you the, the Mount of Beatitudes, the shore where you have these two churches, this area of Bethsaida, Capernaum right in the middle here. If you take this area, that's called the Evangelical Triangle. 80% of the Gospels happen within this triangle. 80% of the Gospels. Um, until you go to kind of this region and walk it and then begin to read those Gospels and, and realize the setting, you can get this idea that, that the whole of the Gospels is just taking place all over the land of Israel. Um, but 80% of it takes place right here. So you, I showed you where Nazareth was. If you followed the Sea of Galilee down, uh, you, would, you would kind of go down, you'd hit Jericho, you'd come inland to Jerusalem. Jericho is where Zacchaeus climbed his sycamore tree. There's actually still a sycamore tree in Jericho that they claim is, is the one from 2,000 years ago. The lifespan of a sycamore tree isn't 2,000 years though. So many believe it's either miraculous or it's not the sycamore tree. Um, <laughs> I didn't know, what, I chose not to have an opinion because I wanted a picture of the sycamore tree. Um, but so you get Jesus in different places, but the bulk of the New Testament or, or the Gospels, that is, are going to happen in that triangle. Um, if we go forward one more, this is the Mount of Beatitudes. Incredibly peaceful. Um, incredibly, incredibly peaceful. I'm standing on, on a, what's the concrete thing at the front of a parking space? curb. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, with two diesel engine buses right behind me. So, so I, I always laugh because this isn't as serene a picture as you might think it is. Um, but right below here is where I was showing you um, the shores where the, uh, the primacy of Peter and then the feeding of the 5,000 traditionally are. So those are right kind of below it. And this hillside here is where Jesus would have had all the people, um, would have had all the people for, I, I this is really throwing me off. <laughs> um, uh, what to do with my hands. Um, where, where Jesus had uh, all the people for the Sermon on the Mount. And in ancient times, you would find a hill like that if you were going to talk to that many people. And actually, people would sit, and, and time was different. You had a lot more time, and so you would talk to people, and then, and then it would, people would turn and relay it forward. So there's this kind of interesting thing of being able to talk to crowds that large that you would, you would kind of because of the hill and the acoustics, be able to talk to a, a large group of people, but then that would kind of get passed on down the hill, and you would just take plenty of time to be able to share what you were going to share. So this is the Mount of Beatitudes. A couple things about the Sea of Galilee here. Uh, this is the tourist boats that they have on the Sea of Galilee to kind of um, bring you back into that kind of fishing boat kind of thing. Um, so you, you walk 
uh, out on a dock, you get on one of these boats, they could probably hold about 50, they play music for you, it's like a party boat shaped like a, like a, like an old Nazareth kind of tourist boat. Uh, I like this because jumping of is prohibited, um, just remember that when you go to the Sea of Galilee, uh, not to jump of. Um, uh, this is, I think I've talked to you about it before, but they, they, they try to demonstrate to you the fishing, um, kind of how they would do the fishing back in, in Jesus' time, ancient times. But they take a net that basically has weights on it and throw it out so that it spreads and then sinks. And when, when the fish are at a certain depth uh, or when they know what depth the fish are at, typically closer to the shore, they'll then be able to pull on, on it and all of the weights will kind of scoop around and, and create a sack, like Santa, Santa Claus's sack. It kind of closes in like that. Um, and then uh, this is what the fishing boats in Jesus' time would have looked like. This is a, kind of a famous archaeological find. They built a museum for it right on the shores of Galilee. But there was two brothers that, whenever there was a storm, they would go looking for treasures kind of on the, the shores uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And... They found kind of after a storm um, one, one time in the mud, something, didn't know what it was. And as they began to excavate, it's this old fishing boat that dates back to the time of Jesus. And so you can kind of see it there. But so if you picture Jesus' disciples out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat this size without life vests, um, it would be a really scary thing if kind of storms came up and began to um, lap against the side of this and, and threaten to capsize it, um, it would be a scary thing. Now, the Sea of Galilee uh, is only about eight miles wide and 13 miles long. In the Gospel Luke, it's called a lake. In the other Gospels, it's called a sea. And because it sit, it's situated between the Golan Heights, which would be off to the right here, and the Galilee region off to the left, it's, a, it's the northernmost part of the Great Rift that separates the African and, and uh, the uh, Arabian kind of tectonic plates. So if you go all the way down to Kenya, uh, the Maras right now are in Kajabi. There's a school where they're at, kind of a missionary school called Rift Valley Academy. So you have the Great Rift Valley that's from Kenya all the way on up, part of the Red Sea and curving around. And that's why the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth um, because it really is this, this, this uh, rift, this crack in the tectonic plates that goes all the way down deep. And because of all that, you can get these crazy storms that come up on the Sea of Galilee. But it, to us, it's much more like a, a really big lake. Um, maybe not much bigger than some of the lakes we would have in central Oregon. Uh, this is looking at the shore where the churches are, primacy of Peter and the feeding of the 5,000. So if you imagine the historic site, you've got people all along the countryside here and Jesus teaching them and, um, and then it's going to provide food. In the church that marks the spot, you've got this courtyard and then this mosaic, uh, the multiplying of the loaves. Uh, it's the miracle of the five, uh, the five loaves is another name for it. Um, but just the mosaic and the floor marking kind of the miracle that happened here. Um, Capernaum is where Peter was from, where a, a lot of the New Testament kind of is set, where it happens, the countryside right around Capernaum, a city of, of not more than a couple thousand at most. And this is the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. And yes, that's a Millennium Falcon or otherwise known as the 1970s Catholic Church over Peter's house. But doesn't it look like the Millennium Falcon? Can you guys see that? It's, it's hideous. It's the worst Catholic Church shrine thing ever. Um, and it's got a glass floor. And so you can, you can walk in or view right in over Peter's house, which later in the early New Testament period was turned into a, a Christian church. So the excavated uh, ruins of that kind of are right underneath and, and the glass floor of... Nobody thinks that's funny. Anyways. Uh, this is the shore of Capernaum right here and kind of looking out uh, over towards the east. And that'll factor in later when we're talking about this 
And let me go back. Um, so this is kind of the setting. So you got Jesus with this large crowd, and he's, he's been teaching them about the kingdom. He's actually been healing people. And you get to the end of the day, and a lot of these people have come a day's journey. They might even have, have come from as far as Nazareth. And so they're in this area. Uh, they're, they're, most of them would be Jewish individuals, and they're, they're here to kind of seek out Jesus, his disciples here, his teaching. And his disciples, because these are their people, these are the townspeople, these are cousins, these are aunts, uncles, these are, these are their people. They're very concerned about their well-being as it gets late in the day. And they're saying, we've got to send them back to some of those small cities, back to where, where they came from or where they have relatives, so that they can find lodging for the night, so that they can get food. And Jesus says, what do you have? You give them something to eat. They have five loaves, two fish, and then Jesus says, um, that's good enough. And he creates this miracle that ends up feeding all the people with 12 basketfuls left. So in trying to teach on the, the feeding of the 5,000, this miracle that's so prominent in the Gospels, there are so many different angles to this story, this narrative that you could take. And so I want us to kind of begin to wrap our mind around all these different vantage points at which we could look at this. I'm going to use some video clips to help us. So here's the first one. It's a Jesus movie. And... away. We've got nothing to give them to eat. They should go to the villages where they can find food. There's no need to send them away. You give them something to eat. Oh, there are thousands of them. We cannot feed them. Is there any food left? This is all we have. Five barley loaves and two fish. Put the loaves and the fish in the baskets and give them to the people. Go on. Why are you waiting? Do as he says. I'm sorry, there's only one. That's all we have. But we're starving. What do you mean there's only one? There's plenty.
right, so what, what does that particular telling of the story focus on? What's the central theme that that, that kind of rendering is trying to get across? Anybody? It's class time. I prefer teaching over preaching, by the way. Crowd, the miracle, right? It's like the center of this particular story is magic. That's why Jesus does the uh, Spock thing. Um, and, and so it's really about this power, this magic, this, this miraculous ability of Jesus. And associated with that is the doubt of Mary Magdalene, who's kind of this figure in the back of the story. So you've got this, this kind of woman who's holding herself, who's guarded, who doesn't want to trust and you see that, that kind of play out as Jesus is showing his power that it's beginning to make this woman believe. So you see kind of the, the miraculous power and, and doubt being kind of the, the central point of it. We could give a message. I could give a message. We could talk about miracles. What do we make of miracles? Do they happen? Do they not happen? Did Jesus have the power uh, of, of doing miracles? Are we supposed to believe that? We could talk about that. We could talk about doubt and, and what it looks like when we sit on the edges and we're, we're trying to peer in and believe whether this thing is really true, whether there's any juice to this, whether that, that kind of after we've put our faith in this man, whether he's going to prove real or true or be able to do that. So that's part of it. Um, another thing that comes out in this and will come out in the, the next little clip I'm going to show um, is white replacement theology. Um, white replacement theology is basically where we, we take and we, as, as Anglo-centric people, we cast Jesus always as an Anglo um, and, take and, and put the Savior it, as us, as the blue, uh, blue-eyed kind of Northern European. Notice that Peter always looks uh, Jewish, uh, like he would be from the ancient Near East. Um, but white replacement theology is a really big deal. I have a lot of friends right now who are uh, African-American and are really upset about the new Moses movie coming out. Anyone seen the preview for that? So Ramses looks like he's from Egypt, right? But Moses looks like he's from where? But Moses is the same actor that played Batman, right? So... Our American superheroes are what we want to see when we depict biblical heroes. Do you see that? It's interesting when we talk about Hitler, we talk about this idea of the Aryan race, that the blonde-haired, blue eyes, this kind of um, picture of whiteness. We, we hear about that when we're disgusted and we're like, how racist. Um, but then when we want to see that reflected in... Um, artistic renderings of Jesus, we never really think that, wow, that's somehow just as weird, right? Um, so you see that coming through. You'll see it in the next little animated clip. Uh, and then you see Jesus really discipling his disciples. And I think that's one of the main themes of this, this idea that they want to deal with it through human, kind of a human grid of, of we got to buy food. We need money. Like, we have to solve this problem with resources, and we have to kind of begin to rationally fix this and address this. And it's been one of the more interesting things at Antioch is that as there have been needs over the course of eight years, we'll pray about those needs, and oftentimes the solution resolves the problem, resolves the tension, but through a totally different mechanism than what was logical, the money to go buy this, or the fact that people are going to have to go to fix this. So there's a discipleship element where Jesus is discipling his followers about, hey, when you're with me and we're doing the will of the Father, uh, I have food you know nothing of. Doing the will of the Father is, is where it's going to be man- made manifest and there's power enough to make this work without us having to resolve the tensions. And so they're kind of a part of this. The disciples take the baskets. I mean, just imagine this, by the way. If you're one of these disciples and you're taking the baskets around, what's going to happen is you go to a new group of 50 people sitting on the ground and you bring them food. What's going to happen? Hey, man, where'd you get this? Right? 
Like I can just, especially if my daughter Ashlyn is there. So what you mean to say is that guy, <laughs> like, I mean, you're going to get all these questions. And so the disciples are having to answer these questions. I think it's a, a beautiful picture of how Jesus engages them in the learning process as they're having to try and figure out the language to explain what's going on or to explain who he actually is. And then at the end, there's 12 basketfuls left. Did they start with 12? They started with five loaves, two fish. They get 12 left. How many, how many apostles are there? How many tribes are there in Israel? 12 is this incredibly symbolic number in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's this kind of plan of God that it's framed out, that it's orderly, that God knows what he's doing and he's working that plan and that agenda and he's going to do it through these 12 people. And there's 12 baskets left over, a basket for each one of these guys. Um, so very interesting, very telling. So here's a totally different take on um, this story. And uh, let's watch this for just a second. Little boy of 13 was on his way to school. He heard a crowd of people laughing and he went to take a look. Thousands were listening to the stories of one man. He spoke with such wisdom, even the kids could understand. Hours passed so quickly, the day turned into night. Everyone was hungry, but there was no food in sight. The boy looked in his lunchbox at the little that he had. He wasn't sure what good it do. So, so I really do want you to see the, the twinkling blue eyes. Uh, we, inf we reinforce stereotypes of, of power differentials that, that I don't think we're often aware of. But so this is the Nashville countrified version of the story, right? Now, what's the focal point of, of this story? Faith, more specifically. Faith of a child. And... And look at what I've got. So the Gospel of John has, has the boy in it. So this is taking the Gospel of John's reading, and it's using an off-center character, and now we're going to follow this character. And this character is kind of like um, the picture of faith. And so if we were teaching it from that standpoint, the question we would ask ourselves when we would go home uh, would be, what are my loaves? What are, what are my two loaves of bread? What, what are my fish? What do I have to bring to Jesus that's meager, that's the basic thing, but in faith I can bring this to Jesus and then Jesus can multiply it. But all of a sudden you get this kind of story of it really being about us and, and bringing what we have to Jesus. We do this with uh, the story of David and Goliath, right? The story of David and Goliath is a crazy story, but it's really a story of, of, of faith on a large scale. Nobody was willing to engage in this battle, this representative warfare with Goliath. Whoever wins the battle, that's how the war goes. You see this at the beginning of the Brad Pitt movie, Troy, Troy, Tron. Um, was it Troy? Yeah, like representative warfare. But two guys fight, and it decides the fate of, of the armies, right? That's what's going on with David and Goliath. But Goliath was so huge, nobody wanted that pressure, and they thought it was uh, this kind of insurmountable thing. So they were thinking about it on a human level. David comes and thinks about it on a spiritual level, that we cannot stand here while this guy mocks our God. And if you read uh, the David and Goliath book by Malcolm Gladwell uh, that just came out, it's a fascinating telling of that story. And they start talking about a condition where somebody would continue to grow and be a, a giant like that, and what it does to the eyes and, and the speculation that, that Goliath probably didn't have good eyesight. And that's why 
you know, he thinks that, 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 uh, that David's coming at him with sticks and what are you, a dog, and come, come near to me so that I can fight you. This whole idea that he probably can't see very well. And so Malcolm Gladwell wants to say this is a fascinating story of taking weakness uh, and disadvantage and turning it into strength. And instead of fighting hand-to-hand combat with this guy that's obviously bigger and more powerful, that David stays on the outside and uses what his strengths are, um, these, these rocks or these stones, and ends up felling this giant. Um, but when we tell that story, we usually ask what application question? What are, your, what are your stones? What are your five rocks, smooth stones? What do, what do you have, and, and then how are you going to go slay the giant? And, and not only that, what are the giants in your life? And, uh, and I think that we get kind of locked into this very... Um, reading ourselves into the story, into the kind of heroic position, rather than realizing that faith is really not about us. Faith is about um, seeing what God can do, um, sometimes despite us, sometimes through us, but it's really about what's happening in the narrative of Jesus, in the narrative of what God's trying to teach. And, and certainly we can ask what our, what our loaves are, uh, what we can bring to Jesus, but I don't think that's kind of the center of the story. I think there's something really interesting about this. You get this idea in, in the Catholic tradition for sure that the feeding of the 5,000 is really this picture of the Eucharist of, of kind of here is my body and, and come and eat. Um, that these loaves are being broken for you, that I am going to sustain you, that, that somehow this is how you're going to be spiritually taken care of. So you get this picture of, of kind of the Eucharist um, in that. You also get something really interesting in the Mark telling of this story that juxtaposes against Psalm 23. So I'll just roll us through this real quick. But Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Mark 6, they were like sheep without a shepherd. I shall not be in want. They all ate and were satisfied. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then Jesus directs them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. He leads me beside still waters. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. So they went away by themselves uh, in a boat to a solitary place. Back in verse 31 through 32. He restores my soul and gets some rest. Again, 31b. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So he began to teach them many things. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The feeding of the 5,000 takes place on a predominantly Jewish side of the Galilee, but the feeding of the 4,000, we'll talk about in just a minute, takes place in the region of the Decapolis inside of the enemies. You prepare a table before me. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. You anoint my head with oil. Anoint uh, the word Christ, which uh, is the Greek Christos for the word Messiah here, means anointed one. Um, My cup overflows. Disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. Uh, And the feeding of the 4,000, there's seven extra basketfuls. One represents Israel, seven. The number seven is the the number of wholeness or completion. Uh, It's the days of creation. We see it used in many other ways as well. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mark 6, the promise of the Messiah is the restoration of God's house for everyone, even Gentiles. So you see this interesting kind of story develop where Jesus is the good shepherd, That Jesus is coming. We even see Ezekiel 34 where the failings of the leaders of the nation of Israel, that they've been these bad shepherds, they've failed. And then God begins to promise them that this shepherd is going to come and he will send a good shepherd. And in that, uh, that passage, we have that phrase, my people are like sheep without a shepherd. So you see this incredible kind of picture here where Jesus is making known, not just preaching about the kingdom, but manifesting himself as the king of the kingdom or the shepherd that God has sent to take care of his people, the nation of Israel or his sheep. So um, those are a couple different ways we can look at it. Here's a totally different 
Um, and I think probably my favorite way that we could look at this story. The feeding of the 5,000, like it's 5,000 people and there weren't some bread and fish. I reckon that was just about 4,500 people going, what have we got, bread and fish? I'm all right, thanks. I'll have something when I get home. <laughs> it's also the other interesting thing about that story is that out of the 5,000 people, only two of them had thought to bring any food. Yes. And so in a way, it's, okay, good miracle, but the other side of it is 4,998 idiots. <laughs> no sense of foresight at all. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't make them learn a lesson from that. It's it all fine. You say, they, this they, is the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't Glastonbury, you could have said. Well, couldn't you? But you know, you, used to say, you didn't bring any food? Of course there's yeah. not going to be any food. Think yeah. about it. Yeah. Plan next time. <laughs> Judea would be better if people planned. <laughs> No, yeah, no, it always works out fine. Jesus will magic up some grub. He's going to get people. crucified one day, and then what are you going to eat? Yes. <laughs> All right, no teaching point there. Um, but uh, there's two things that I want to take out of this, out of this passage. Um, and the first one is juxtaposing it to the different feeding miracle. So we see this one in the, the Gospel of Mark. If you want to turn to Mark... Uh, we'll read it. But this is called, the first one is called the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, the second one is called the feeding of the 4,000. Again, we see this in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. The feeding of the 4,000. And this is how the story tells. Beginning in verse 1, it says, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come, along, have come a long distance. And his disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Jesus asks, How many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. And he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they did so. Um, what makes this story interesting is if you go back up and begin reading in chapter 7, verse 30, 31, it's where Jesus is, is at, where he's teaching in this particular part of the narrative. Verse 31 says this, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to, uh, to place his hand on, on the man. And Jesus ends up healing this man, commands people not to tell anyone, but they do. And people are amazed, and so crowds begin to, to come and follow him. And that's why he ends up with these 4,000 people. So where is the Decapolis? So if we go back to our picture here, uh, the Decapolis region is a big region on the east side of the Jordan. So the, the mouth of the Galilee down here that would flow south is down there. So the Jordan would flow down that way. And the Decapolis is to the east, and it's this whole region back behind there. Okay? If I show you on a map, um, you see that D? If we zoomed out on this map, it would say Decapolis. And so it's this whole kind of west bank, um, I'm sorry, east bank uh, of of the Jordan River that comes down, and it's a, a Roman kind of pagan area. These people are under uh, the authority of Rome. They're, they're pagans. They're not Jewish. They're not uh, Samaritans. Um, Samaritans would be down in this region here. Uh, Tabor, Mount Tabor is right in this area, uh, which is the mountain when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, Jacob's well, and they worship on that mountain. And today, if you were to go here, one of the largest Palestinian refugee camps is situated right kind of in the shadow of that mountain, um, which is a, just a fascinating kind of uh, experience being through there. But so over here on this side, it's people that are secular-ish in some sense. They're pagan, but, but more in the Roman version. They're proud of that. They eat pork. They don't eat kosher. Uh, it's a whole different... Um, tribe of people. These are not Jewish people. The disciples would not have had cousins here, would not have had aunts or uncles here, would not have um, been from these villages. Uh, this, is, this is a different place. It's an other place. It's those people. Does that make sense? 
okay? Now, what's the difference between this story and the feeding of the 5,000? The first one is just that. The crowd is made up of a different kind of people. The crowd and the feeding of the 5,000 is a Jewish crowd, predominantly Jewish crowd. The feeding of the 4,000 is this predominantly pagan crowd. How many days does it take in the feeding of the 5,000 um, for the question of food to come up? You guys remember? How many days? One day. How many days does it, does it take when Jesus is in the Decapolis region? In that town, Hippos, by the way, is one of the bigger uh, cities in this region. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. So the Golan Heights are up here. Um, and you've got this city kind of on a little bit of a hill. Um, but this is one of the big cities. So Jesus is probably in this area back behind it. And, um, and so it takes three days for the subject of food to come up. Okay? Um, in the story of the 5,000, who brings up the issue of food? The disciples. In the story of the 4,000, who brings up the issue of food? Jesus does. It's really interesting. Let's read it again. So Jesus is with this crowd of people, a large crowd that had nothing to eat. And Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for, for three days and they have nothing to eat. I've got a lot to say about that verse. Um, one thing was this. When we started Killens College, we started talking about social justice. Um, and I got railed on by a particular pastor in Central Oregon um, who, was, who was rather adamant against social justice, which I think is always really funny when people say they're against social justice because I'm saying, does that mean you're for social injustice? I don't understand. What does that mean you're not for social justice? What it means is you watch politics too much and you're against certain political uh, strategies for enacting social justice. But the orphan, the widow, the alien, the immigrant, I mean, how can you not be for justice in society? You can certainly differ on techniques or political strategies at arriving at social justice, but please don't think that we're against justice, right? but so this person kind of said this, and we got in this email dialogue going back and forth, and, and the, the topic began to be centered around compassion. And, and this particular pastor uh, sent me an email, and I still have it to this day, and I use it uh, in some of my classes. Um, but this pastor said, Jesus never once did an act of compassion unless it was for the, the proclamation of who he was as the Messiah or as the King. In other words, the the acts of compassion were actually ways of of manifesting or telling people who Jesus was. Does that make sense? So Jesus actually never really just engaged in compassion for compassion's sake. Why was this pastor trying to say that? Because this pastor is like... uh, really in in the age-old debate between conservative and liberal theological tendencies where in the last hundred years uh, the liberal side of Christianity had love and the conservative side had preaching, the, 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 the proclamation of Jesus and the gospel and salvation, um, uh, forgiveness of our sins unto the salvation of our souls. And this pastor was really trying to say, if you say that Jesus just had compassion or did things out of compassion for compassion's sake, pretty soon we're just going to start loving people and not preaching about Jesus. Okay? And so this was the email he was sending uh, me and the argument he was trying to put forward. And I said two things about it. I said, one, um, you make it sound like if we just start loving people for loving people's sake, that somehow we're doing something really bad. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> I'm like, do you realize what you're saying? It's as if you're saying in the parable of the Good Samaritan that, that it's like, wow, I better be careful not to love that guy because I might be on the slippery slope to theological liberalism. And so Jesus is going to be really happy that I avoided that slippery slope, you know, because they say like if you're on a roof and you drop a hammer and it starts to slide, you don't start running for the hammer. Why? Because you end up running right off the roof, right? So you just let the hammer go. And so, you know, that guy's hurt. He's in the ditch, but it's like that hammer. I got to just let that guy go because if if I show him any compassion, 
you know, the next thing you know, we're not going to be talking about Jesus anymore. And so I kind of emailed this guy back. I'm like, do you sound, do you, do you realize how ridiculous you sound? Um, that, that somehow love has now become a bad thing in your moral vocabulary. How strange, right? And then I, the second thing, um, much more controversial, is I just took him to Scripture and I said, and Jesus had compassion for these people. Why? Well, because they'd been with them for three days and they didn't have any food. And so one of the best things you can do with legalistic people is just take them to the Bible. It's my favorite thing to do with, with, with legalistic people is just show them um, the parts of the Bible they're not reading. And so this is a fascinating thing. Jesus just had compassion for these non-Jewish people. Why? Because they were spiritually lost? No, because they were hungry. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say about it. The second thing is, is, where were the disciples in this whole deal? Like the disciples are really like passionate about what, um, where's the food when it's their buddies. But when it's those people over there that Jesus took them to kind of minister to, all of a sudden, they're really in tune with the spiritual needs, maybe. These people need to, to know Jesus. These people need to, to know that Jesus is the Messiah. They're probably all wrapped up in the spiritual stuff, but they don't really care about the, the physical stuff. Um, so over here, material needs, physical needs matter. Over here with the other people, we spiritualize it. Isn't that what we always do? Isn't that what we always do? If you listened to my prayers, you'd find out, I, I really believe that God should care about my physical needs and that of my family and my close friends. That they, their, paycheck, uh, their paycheck should be big enough. Their illness should be taken care of or healed. Uh, that, that they should have food. That they should be able to be healthy. Their physical and material needs really matter to me and it shows up in my prayer. When we talk about those people, those people, the, the homeless guy, or the people in Asia, or the people, who, whoever the other is for you, all of a sudden we start to spiritualize it. You know, those people really need Jesus. You know, I know the sign says they need food, but, but, but that would just be contributing and enabling, and, you know, the physical stuff, you know, that's just a mask for the deeper spiritual stuff. What they really need is they really need Jesus. They really need to know who Jesus is. They really need to have their heart changed. Um, do you see that? There's something really interesting that I think is, is surfaced when we compare these two feeding miracles. And what it is is it's our, our, our latent, hidden implicit bias toward all things our own or ours. Um, but Jesus, not so. Jesus is in Decapolis and he's preaching and he's healing and he's doing the exact same things he did with the Jewish audience over here. But he looks around and, and finally says, hey, we need to feed these people. They're hungry. They're so famished that if they were to walk, they might even faint. How come I'm the one that's bringing this up? How come you haven't taken, and, and here's the kicker, when Jesus asks, do you have any food, <laughs> what do the disciples say? Yeah. That's our food, though. We, we knew we were going to be walking through this area, and so we brought the cliff bars. Um, but if we give the cliff bars, I mean, it's not kosher over here. What are we going to eat? You know, I mean, so you see something really interesting happening. And I think it's a real challenge to me because when we talk about the table, and Pete brought this up the last couple of weeks, are we really willing to care about the physical, material needs of others the way we do about us and our own? Um, are, we, are we really willing to get social justice? Biblical social justice. Are we really willing to get compassion that even though I might be hungry, even though I might be sojourning in a strange land, even though I might be uh, going on a couple days without sleep or, or, 
or laying my head down on a rock as a pillow, even though I might be going through all these things, there are other people around me that have needs. And I can look on them with compassion. And when we do that, we're being Christ-like. That leads into the second thing that's the takeaway for me. Um, And that's just this. Maybe it's just where I'm at in life, um, but it's the part that hit home for me. When Jesus heard the news of John the Baptist, he, he goes to pull away and rest. So this is his cousin, his good friend, but I think, think about it a little bit deeper. John the Baptist was in prison and then had his head cut off, okay? Um, and Jesus, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus is the main show. Jesus knows that he's gonna die. I mean, when when you all of a sudden hear about John the Baptist, if you know you've got the same fate coming to you, what would that do to you? Like, man, it's just a crazy reminder that all this time, like hanging with my disciples and teaching them and sharing life together and sharing meals together, like it's all gonna come to a really bloody end. And I know it. And that's, man, that's a weight to carry with in life that's heavy And the fact that that happened to my cousin who was pointing the way to me, like I grieve over that. I just want to go get away. I'm tired. Ministry is exhausting. Like I just, I need some space to just process. Okay, anyone here right now feel like they need just a little bit of space to heal? Anybody? You don't want to raise your hand because you're like, man, I don't want to single myself out. I'm just going to assume that, that you guys are like I am and you just feel like you need some space to heal, to just get away, to recharge, right? What, well, here's the crazy kicker for me. Jesus is empty, needs to recharge, and the next thing you know, he's got 5,000 uninvited dinner guests. Do you want to know what, what kind of mood I'd be in? I mean, seriously. I mean, think of how exhausted you are. You, you come home, you've been working 12-hour days, whatever it might be, and you're there, and the house is crazy, and you're just like, I just can't take it anymore. And then all of a sudden, those people show up at the door. I mean, fill in relative, extended friends, just whoever in, in the city, and they show up at the door. Surprise, we came to hang out with you. Pete preached a great message on the table. We figured we should come to your table. Um, what's your reaction? Um, mine wouldn't be one of compassion. I might fake it. If you know me really well, you can tell the fake, the fake smile. If you don't know me well, uh, well enough, I might fool you. Um, but those that know me know it, right? It's the smile like... And then I go in the, the master bedroom and I'm sitting in my chair and Tamara walks in and she's like, we got like 30 people in our house. Like, what are you, what, what are you, do, what are you doing? Like, uh, I'm just sitting in my chair. You know, which is crazy because Tamara was the born introvert um, on the Myers-Briggs thing. She's like, um, it, it didn't just say introvert, it said crazy introvert. Like, that's what the test said. It, it gave her that, that answer. And I grew up, and my mom will tell you stories like, I just go up to any old stranger and just start talking to them and invite myself into their life, get myself adopted. Um, I, I was just a crazy extrovert. And now, like, there I am in my chair in the master bedroom, like, what are you doing? There's 30 people in our house. Like, that's how I would handle this thing happening. Um, not so Jesus. Jesus, I wrote this down because this is kind of how I boiled it down. For Jesus, your needs are as significant to him as his problems. So if I were to put it in the first person, your needs need to be as significant to me as my problems are to me. See, the truth is we all are a bit hospitable. We're all a bit good. We're all a bit loving. We're all a bit social. Um, But it takes some energy to kind of do that. And when we, our heart, our self, who we really are, gets really run down and weary, it's like Star Trek when, when the, the force fields, the, what are they called? The, the, anybody? The shields? 
Come on. Does she, someone yell it out. We're, if the sermon goes long, it's your fault. It's, it's whatever, whatever the, the enterprise had that like after a while, it'd be like a 40%. Deflector shields. Why, did that, why was that so hard? Like, <laughs> seriously. Um, so like the deflector shields like are going down, they're at 40%, they're at 30%, they're at 20%. We, we do that when we're tired. Our ability to be who we wish we were all the time, all of a sudden is like at 50%, 40%, 30%, 20%. Get out of my house. <laughs> like, I, I hate you. Don't come back. Did I invite you? I didn't invite you, you know? Um, really? Really? Like, you're... Your problems are that big, like you're going to be out on the street in a day. Well, let me tell you about my problems. You know what I mean? Like we, we begin to be that. I begin to be that. And, and as Jesus remakes us into his own image, I have to believe that somehow part of what he's doing is that when I'm at my weakest, I'm still able to look at your needs and say, dang, I'm sorry. I know that must hurt. Wow, I can imagine what that would feel like. Wow, now that I put myself in your place, I can see exactly, um, I can see all that. And that matters to me. Because I know when I'm hurting, what that feels like. And so if you're hurting, that matters to me. And, and you know what? I care, I have compassion on you. You know what? I've got, an, I got some extra cliff bar. Or money. Or time or energy. I, these things aren't going to fix my problem, but you know what? The leftovers I have might fix your problem. Let me kind of do that. And you begin to start the love revolution because then those people, even in their hurting, go, you know what? There's nothing I can do about my cancer. But I can take you a meal because I heard you just lost somebody. Or there's nothing I can do about my financial situation. But you know what? I can send a text message to somebody and just tell them I love them and brighten their day. And in doing so, I'm going to forget a little bit about whatever it is and realize that there's something deeper and spiritual and relation, relational going on in this world and that we can all kind of be there. And so somehow when we get made into the image of Christ, our heart gets remade that even in our weakest moments, we can have compassion on other people. That their problems are significant as my needs or my problems. So here's the conclusion. Jesus is the good shepherd who meets the needs of his people and has compassion for all people. That's what I'm taking home today. Um, it's, not, it's not my loaves of bread. It's not my five smooth stones. It's that Jesus is the good shepherd. And he meets the needs of his people. And he has compassion for all people. And that's good news. Kip, by the way, if you don't know, Kip's... I don't know if you can say like a church employee is killing it, but he's killing it. Um, and he does amazing work. And so he sent out an email on Friday just about a bunch of cool stuff going on in Antioch to all the people he had email addresses for. And, and on Saturday, he forwarded me a, a response that he got from someone that used to come to Antioch years ago for like a year. And they started researching atheism, atheism and came back to Kip with this really long email about uh, Christianity being a disease of the mind. And I realize that religion can hurt a lot of people and that we sometimes can be really hypocritical um, and that miracles can be hard to believe in. But at the end of the day, what I get out of these stories is not a disease of the mind. I, I get that Jesus is the good shepherd who meets the needs of his people and has compassion for all people. That's my savior, that's my friend, that's my shepherd. I'm drawn to that more than I am anything else in this world. I believe in that more than I believe in anything else in this world. And that's the takeaway for me, is that our faith is solid. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for meeting our needs. Thank you for the love and the compassion that we see it's a part of your identity for God is love and we see it reflected and manifested in Jesus' character and we see it reflected in practical and tangible ways. And I'm anchored into that and I rejoice because of it.
Let that be what renews me. Let that be the source of my strength and my energy. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.